We will be starting our new series on January 12th, and uh, we have new series Sunday cards available for you as you leave today, so please be sure to grab a few of those to hand out uh, and just invite people to come. It's a great uh, opportunity to do that. Um, I would just ask uh, if you wouldn't mind just praying for my grandfather. I think some of you have seen the emails uh, and my Facebook post this morning. Uh, my grandfather had fallen a couple uh, a week or ten days ago, and I uh, was in Hawthorne Rehab, and uh, it turns out that he had a clot in his leg, that his entire left leg. And so uh, yesterday, they were able to go in and pull some of the clot out. Uh, here in about 40, 45 minutes, they're going to try and pull the rest out. Um, and so they're taking him right now, I'm hearing. So uh, just pray for him, uh, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, just that the doctors will be able to, to work through that, and that my grandfather would be healed. Uh, we are today uh, finishing our Go Tell It on the Mountain series, and uh, last week we talked about the time that the angels went and saw the shepherds, and that they brought good news of great joy that would be to all people. And that good news, remember, is uh, that word uh, for evangelism, that they went out and they shared the full story of the complete gospel of Christ with the shepherds. And that story is that Christ's sacrifice and his grace are reasons to rejoice. It's not just an emotional response, it doesn't just, you know, make us glad and happy, rather, the sacrifice that Christ came, the fact that he came in, in, to this earth to live and die, it gives us an occasion, a reason to celebrate. And we know that he is the manifestation of God's glory and our source of eternal peace. And we worship him when we tell his story. Remember those angels that the one was delivering the message, and then suddenly they all erupted in just a chorus of praise, shouting the glory of God and worshiping him because the gospel had been delivered to the people. And then we know that we cannot pick and choose. We, the gospel is for everyone. And picking and choosing who hears it is hypocrisy. You know, our, our entire community, this entire world needs to know who Jesus is. And we must go out and share it with everyone when we have the opportunity. Before we dive into our service today, I would like to just open in prayer and just give this time over to God. Let's give our hearts, our own minds and spirits, and just our own distractions. Let's lay them at his feet so that he can do a work in us. Father, we come to you this morning and we worship you. God, to think that you are holy, to think that you are our father and that you choose to love us is, is overwhelming, God. And we sit here in the realization of that reality, and we are so grateful for you. We thank you for your son, that, that you sent him to this earth to die on the cross, to live a perfect life, God. We pray that as we hear the message that you have prepared today, God, that we recognize the transformation that you want to see occur in each of us. Father, I would pray that you know, any distraction that we, we came in, in, in with, God, that we would lay it at your feet. And we do that now. For me, Lord, I lay the burden of my grandfather. And knowing that he is going to his procedure now, God, I give that to you. Lord, he is in your hands, God. And I just pray that you would use this time, Lord, to just speak to your people. God, let us hear your voice so clearly and recognize what you are saying to us. God, change us. In this time and in this hour, we thank you for that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series has been about how the angels went and proclaimed the message of Christ's birth. And, you know, today we're going to be talking about the Magi and the message that they received. And admittedly, it doesn't tell us that they received a message from angels. It says that they heard in a dream about 
you know, something related to Christ's birth, but it still is, is relevant and important for us to understand what that message is. One thing, though, is that that message was received after they met Christ. So they met Christ, and then they had a message about him. And so to really understand the message, we have to understand their interaction with Christ first. And we see, uh, we kind of see the start of it in Matthew chapter 2. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. So when we look at this, what we see is we know the Magi came to worship him who was born king of the Jews. And when we look at this story, a couple things that we need to realize. You know, I know our traditional nativity includes wise men there with the shepherds, with Mary at the stable. And while that's tradition, it's likely not history because they came after he was born. It says in a moment, as we'll see, they found him in his house. And so he was, he could have been as old as two years old when they came to see him. And they came and they first stopped with Herod and they said, Herod, we have come to worship him who was born king of the Jews. Can you tell us where he is? And how did Herod, Herod react? He was disturbed, greatly disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. So why would Herod be disturbed? Well, it's because the Magi said we have come to find him who was born king of the Jews. Herod was called king of the Jews, but he was not born king of the Jews. You see, he had ascended to that title or that role through a three-year violent revolution. He had overthrown the previous leader, and at the end of that violent conflict, the Roman Senate granted Herod that title. And so when he sees these, these wise men come to him, and they say, we are, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, Herod immediately sees a threat. Because this is the one who is, it's the rightful place for him to have this position. And we know Herod's reaction. He sent, you know, his guards out and said, we're going to kill every boy younger than two years old. Reminiscent of what happened with Moses, who had been sent to deliver his people from slavery. Jesus coming to deliver his people from slavery to sin. We see the parallel between them. But why would the entire nation of Jerusalem be, or the city of Jerusalem be, uh, you know, disturbed with Herod? Well, for them... Herod ascended to power through a violent revolution. So if they hear that there is someone who is rightfully in the place or should rightfully be in the place that Herod is, their mind is thinking only more revolution. You see, these people are only thinking in the terms of of politics. They're only thinking in the terms of a political king, not a spiritual or eternal or sovereign king that God had prophesied and, and, and had sent into the world Their minds were looking in the wrong direction, but I think the Magi understood. Because it said that they came to worship him. And the word for worship, I mean, you could say that, you know, it it could be a a veneration of royalty, but that's not the the context of the word that they are using. You know, it's literally to prostrate yourself. It's to kiss the ground of of the one that is walking ahead of you as your leader. It is almost explicitly used when it's talking about worshiping God and the ascended Christ. That is the word that, that they used when they said, we have come to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. They knew something was different about him. They had read the prophecies, they had seen the star, and they were looking for Christ. And we see that they understood who he was and the gifts that, that they bring. 
And, Ma- and later in Matthew 2, you know, Herod had said, well, tell me where he is. I want to worship him. Obviously, he was lying. He wanted to know where he was so we could kill him. But it says, after they heard the king, the Magi went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you ever end up behind me and walk through Bethlehem at the wise men, I'm just going to apologize for you now, because I spend a little bit of time with the wise men. Because this, to me, is a beautiful picture of who Christ is. You see, their gifts demonstrated that they knew who he was. You see, the gold was a traditionally given to a king. And we see in, in 1 Kings chapter 10 that when the queen of Sheba, when she went to visit Solomon, she brought him 120 talents of gold. When, when dignitaries or other royalty would come and visit a king, they would bring a gift often of gold to the king that they were visiting. Now those 120 talents of gold, just to let you know, that the queen of Sheba brought Solomon, if she gave it today, $213 million. So this was not a small gift. But it says, you know, the significance is not in her gift, it's in what Solomon did. It says that she gave him the 120 talents of gold, but he gave her all that she desired. You see, etiquette demanded that when a king received a gift, that he gave a greater gift in return. And so when these three, or when these wise men, when these magi come, and they give these three gifts, Jesus gives the greatest gift in return. He gives his life. You see, the gold demonstrates that he had come and that he was going to give a greater gift than he could ever be given. They give frankincense. And frankincense, again, another gift that is often uh, given to royalty was because it smelled uh, sweet, it was often used in perfume and, and it was a, sign- a signature of wealth. But here it represents Christ as our high priest. If you ever want to do a study on what it means that Jesus was our high priest, I highly recommend you, bo- you read the book of Hebrews. It is a beautiful picture of Christ's role in this, in this as our high priest. And the role of the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. He was the only man in the entire nation that could enter into the presence of God. And before he entered the presence of God, there were certain things that he had to do to cleanse himself. There was a certain way that he had to dress before he could go in. And he would perform a sacrifice for himself and then for the nation. And he would sacrifice a lamb so that that lamb's blood would cover the sins of the people. But the the frankincense he would burn as he entered the Holy of Holies. Because it would protect him. it It would produce a veil between him and God's presence. And it represented the prayers of the people ascending into heaven. So when these magi, they give the frankincense to Christ... It is saying, it is demonstrating that he will be our high priest. The one who would enter into God's presence on our behalf to offer the sacrifice for our sins. But it tells us in Hebrews that Jesus did not enter into a replica or a man-made holy of holies. You see, the holy of holies in the temple was, was modeled after the very throne room of God in heaven. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus entered into the the original throne room of God, the throne room of God, into his presence, not offering the sacrifice of a lamb that he had slaughtered, but offering the sacrifice of himself, the perfect sacrificial Passover lamb that had been slaughtered. 
He shed his blood so that our sins could not just be covered, but that they could be washed away, that we could experience true and complete forgiveness. That's why they bring the frankincense. And then they give the myrrh another, it's a, it's a tree sap just like frankincense is, and it's used as a perfume as well, but it, it's used in embalming. And so they're giving this foreshadowing Christ's death. In John chapter 19, it tells us that after Jesus died, Nicodemus, that same Pharisee, and John 3 that went to him and said, what's different about you? How do I understand? How do I know? The same man that walked away in the middle of the night, that's the man that helped pull Jesus down, and he brought the myrrh that would be used to embalm Jesus' body. You see, these gifts, they demonstrate that Christ was our king, that he is our high priest, and that he came to die. And these magi, they give these gifts in worship of him. So what do we do? Our worship is demonstrated when we give our lives to Christ. And this isn't just a a, a one time a week, a couple of times a week if you come to more than one service. No, no, no. This is a lifestyle of worship. This is a complete surrender of of ourselves, that we prostrate ourselves before God. And we live in that position, in, in in that attitude towards God, that we are completely given over to him. The Magi demonstrate his role and demonstrate what me what we must do in response to who Christ is. But there's even more significance when we understand the message that the Magi received. You see, it says that having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They were warned and they went home a different way. You see, it's a simple message. Now that you have seen Christ, you cannot go, go home the same way that you came. You see, an encounter, a true encounter with the Savior brings transformation. This is the message of the Magi. This is what we must understand, is that when we come into his presence, when we spend time worshiping God, if we go home the same way, shame on us. We wasted our time. This, this is not a, a social gathering. When we spend time in worship, and it doesn't have to be here. It can be in your car. It can be in your living room. It can be in your bedroom. It can be in your kitchen. It can be with your neighbor. It can be with your coworker. But when you encounter Christ, you go home different. We see this foreshadowed, this expectation foreshadowed in the book of Ezekiel. You see, God was speaking through the prophet Ezekiel about his expectations of how people entered and left the temple during Passover. And he says this, when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed festivals, whoever enters by the north gate to worship is to go out the south gate, and whoever enters by the south gate is to go out the north gate. No one is to return through the gate by which they entered, but each is to go out the opposite gate. Now, the process person in me, the logical person in me, the guy that loves symmetry, says, well, this just is, this is all about managing traffic flow, right? I was, I was talking in our first service about how we changed our traffic flow for walk through Bethlehem to try and minimize, you know, the clogs of traffic because there's so many cars, but that's not what this is about. You see, in verse 10, it tells us that the reason that they came in the north gate and went out the south gate or came in the south and went out the north was because the prince was with the people in the temple. 
that he was there in their presence. Do you see the picture? We sang a song this morning that says the prince of heaven has come. He is in our midst. And when he is in our midst, we cannot go home the same way that we came. There's this beautiful picture that that God illustrates in Ezekiel 45 about why the prince was with the people. It says, in the first month, on the 14th day, you are to observe the Passover, a festival lasting seven days, during which you shall eat bread made without yeast. On that day, the prince is to provide a bull as a sin offering for himself and for all the people of the land. Every day during the seven days of the festival, he is to provide seven bulls and seven rams without defect as a burnt offering to the Lord and a male goat for a sin offering. He is to provide a grain, as a grain offering an ephah for each bull and an ephah for each ram, along with a hint of olive oil for each ephah. During the seven days of the festival, which begins at the, in the seventh month of the 15th day, he is to make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and oil. And it is so easy to read over these things and, and just not realize their significance. You see, the prince was in the temple because it was his job to provide the sacrifice. Did you hear me? The prince was in the temple because it was his job to provide the sacrifice. The prince of heaven has come to be among his people because it's his job to provide the sacrifice. Jesus came to be among us, to live among us, to die among us so that he could be the sacrifice for our sin. And as his people, when we enter his presence, we cannot go home the same way. We must be transformed. We must be. We look at this and we realize that transformation is the natural and expected result of the gospel. I intentionally put natural and expected. Because natural could just, it doesn't imply to me urgency. It doesn't imply an imperative. This is a picture of a caterpillar with its shadow being cast as a butterfly. And I've told you before that if you had never taken like a physical science or no science class and someone showed you a caterpillar and someone showed you a butterfly, you would never make the assumption that they were the same creature. You would never come to that conclusion. But the caterpillar, the sole reason the caterpillar exists is to become a butterfly. It's the expectation, it's natural, and it's expected that the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. So it's natural and expected that when we encounter the Savior, then we receive the gospel, that we are transformed, that we are made new. And we see this throughout Scripture. This month, I've, I've encouraged you to be reading the book of Luke, and there are so many stories of transformation in the book of Luke. We hear about Matthew in Luke chapter 5. He's a tax collector. He's despised by his people. He lied. He cheated. He stole. Jesus goes to him at his booth and says, follow me. Matthew leaves a job that had made him a wealthy man. And he follows Christ. And he invites fellow tax collectors and other sinners to his house to meet Jesus. We know that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. We also uh, know that he became an, um, a missionary into Persia and Ethiopia, and he died a martyr. That's transformation. That's transformation. 
We think about Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 7, and in Luke chapter 8, and in Luke chapter 24. This woman was possessed by seven demons. She was a prostitute. She sold her body for sex. She, she was known as a sinner. When people saw her and saw her interacting with Christ and others, they said, doesn't Jesus know who is washing his feet? Doesn't Jesus know about this woman? She is a sinner. They knew this about her. But because of Christ, it became known about her that she was one who followed him and served him. You see, in Luke 7... She sees Jesus rejected by a Pharisee. Jesus had gone to Simon, uh, Simon's house and instead of welcoming him or washing his feet or anointing him with oil, he did none of that. And Mary sees it and it breaks her heart and she goes to Christ and she weeps over his feet, washing, washing them with her hair and anointing him with alabaster oil. And Luke 8, it's a very short just snippet, it says, Mary Magdalene and others, these women, they became known as the ones who followed and served Christ. Known as being a woman that sold her body for sex, going to being known as a woman who followed Jesus. That's transformation. That's the power of the gospel. We see in, in Luke chapter 8, the demoniac, that Jesus gets out of the boat and there's a man among the tombs. He is not dressed. He's naked and he is possessed by a demon. He's in chains, but they're broken because no matter how many times they try to chain him down, he breaks loose. And Jesus commands the demons to come out. And it says that the next time that the people saw him, that he was clothed and in his right mind, he begged to go with Jesus. He said, let me go and follow you. Let me go and learn from you. You know what Jesus said? You're not going to follow me. You're going to go home and you're going to tell everyone about what I have done. There's Zacchaeus in, in, um, in Luke chapter 19. Another tax collector despised by the people. Jesus picks Zacchaeus out. He's in a tree. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus says, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone anything, I will give them back four times what I have stolen. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. That's transformation. In other scriptures we see in John 3, we hear about Nicodemus, that Pharisee that went to Jesus in the middle of the night because he's ashamed of being even associated with Christ, of even going to ask him a question he says, I see that something's different about you. I know that something's different about you. What is it? How do I understand? How can I walk in this power? And Jesus says, you must be born again. In that moment, Nicodemus doesn't see it. But Jesus tells him, he refers back to something that happened in the book of Numbers, where Moses, the, the, the nation of Israel, had been attacked by a plague of poisonous snakes. And the snakes would bite the people, and, and they, would, they would die because of the poison. And God told Moses to take one of the snakes and put it up on a, on a stick and hold it up so that when people looked to the snake, they would be saved. And Jesus refers back to this. And so when Nicodemus sees Jesus on the tree, he realizes what's happening. And in John 19, like I said, he's there taking Christ off the cross in front of everyone. We see this Paul. What a transformation that Paul went through persecuting Christians. Whenever he came, people knew who he was and what he was about. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. Life transformed, and he writes two-thirds of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says about transformation. 
In Galatians 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to look at those words. Can you say that about yourself? That you no longer live in yourself, for yourself, but Christ is living in you? And that you are living in faith, or faith in him who loved you and gave himself for you? Are you truly living that way? In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. You see, when we are in Christ, there is no other option than for the new to come. For the old to go, transformation must occur. It's natural and expected for that to happen. A few verses later, he says that God, gave, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the story of the gospel is that God loved us at our worst so that he could make us into his best. Not so that he could leave us where we are. But in all of this, what we must realize is that transformation, not only is it natural, not only is it expected, but transformation is a choice. God's not going to force it on anyone In fact, not everyone who had an interaction with Christ was changed. I'm sure you've you've seen this meme online. Judas had the best pastor, the best leader, the best teacher, the best friend, and yet he failed. You see, it says that Judas was a thief, not before he was a disciple, while he was a disciple. They would go around and he would be the one to hold the money and he would routinely take money out of the bag. He failed. You see, if your interaction, if your encounter with the Savior doesn't change your character, if it doesn't change you, then you will always remain the same. We must allow the transformation to occur. We must allow. But how does it happen? What must must we do? To walk in that transformation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. Which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So we look at this and we realize that transformation requires our engagement with God. That we are, we are free to engage in a deep and personal and connected relationship. In fact that is what we were created to do. But the word contemplate is the one that we must pay attention to. This doesn't mean to think casually. It doesn't mean to just, well, you know, I'll think about that. I'll ponder it. No, contemplate here means to to, to search the depths of. So let's replace that word with its definition. For all who with unveiled faces search the depths of. Of the Lord's glory, we will be transformed. That is what the message of this is. You want to walk in transformation? Search the depths of God. Pursue Him to the uttermost. Be captivated in your relationship with Him, and you will be transformed. God is not looking for us to be wishy-washy in our commitment. He is looking for us to be utterly given over to our commitment that we withhold nothing from him and we do that when we search his depths 
when we, when we engage in a relationship with him that is always wanting more. Are you satisfied where you are? I hope not. I hope not. Because we must search the depths of who the Lord is. And when we do, we can be assured of the transformation that he promises. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. I want to walk in that kind of transformation. I want my heart of stone to be removed. I want my spirit that is addicted to my flesh to be taken away and be traded for the spirit of God. That's what I want. And I would pray that you would want the same thing, that that God would come and do a work in, in you that is so powerful. You see, he says that he puts his spirit in us. Why? To move us to follow his decrees and be careful to keep his laws. You see, when he puts his spirit in us, you might say, John, this Christian walk is so hard. It's too hard. I can't do it by myself. You know what? You're right. And God knew it. And that's why he said, I'm putting my spirit in you so that you can be moved to follow me. So transformation is, that's what he wants and desires for everyone. It's his heart to change us. It's his heart to change us. He will not force us but we must engage in and with him. We must no longer surrender to our flesh. Our flesh has been defeated. The power of sin in our life is gone. I've told you before, sin, the only power sin has in your life is what you give it. It's defeated. It's dead. In Romans 6 it says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, again, hearkening back to Galatians 2, so that the body ruled by the sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So when we take all of these verses together, we come to the same conclusion that Paul has come to. Given that God said that he will put his spirit in us in Ezekiel. And that since our old self, that that flesh that has been crucified with Christ, we live by the spirit. Paul said that that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is given to us and we will have life. When we surrender to the spirit. You see, when we look at all of this, this is the message of what the gospel is bringing. This is the message for the wise men that when we surrender to God and worship, it changes our priorities. It changes our focus. It changes everything. It changes everything. We are no longer led by the flesh that leads to death. We are led by the spirit which gives life. But the thing is, this transformation cannot be just internal. Going back to the caterpillar. How do you know that a caterpillar has become a butterfly? Because it looks like a butterfly. Right? It's a butterfly. The caterpillar doesn't go around saying, well, I'm a butterfly. 
You just have to believe me. Right? No, it's a butterfly. The same is true for us, and yet so often we say, no, I'm a Christian, you have to believe me. But our fruit doesn't align with the, the change and transformation that God is trying to work out within us. And it's a problem. And Jesus highlighted it. He said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good fruit out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil, stored, brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We should hear these words and tremble. We should hear these words and tremble. But we have hope. Because listen, listen to the, the progression of what we have learned today. In Ezekiel 36, it says that God deposited his spirit in us. Jesus says that a good, a good man brings good things out of the good that has been deposited in him. The good that is within him. You see, God has deposited his spirit, which is good in us already. We must allow that good to be manifested in our life. And this good is not just like a good as we would think about it in a worldly term. The good here is intrinsically good. It is one who is surrendered to God. He's talking about a believer. He says if you have a relationship with Christ, if you are a believer, if you have surrendered to God, that spirit has been given into you, it has been deposited into you, and because of that good thing that God has put in you, you will demonstrate good fruit. If you have not, the question is, have you truly been changed? You see, if the fruit of your life doesn't match the change on the inside, have you truly been changed? That's the question that we must all ask. I want you to take a minute and just reflect over the last seven days. I want you to do a fruit inspection for a moment. I want you to think about your interactions with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, your neighbors. I want you to think about the people that you interact with, that you struggle in relationship with. I want you to think about what you put on social media this week. The memes, the videos, the comments, the posts. I want you just a moment to look back on them as a casual third party observer. Someone that doesn't know you. If this was all the evidence they had about you, if they had to make a decision is this person a Christian? I mean, not just claims to be a Christian, but a Christian. A true, surrendered disciple of Christ. If all they had was the evidence of your last seven days, would they be able to come to that conclusion? Last night in the ER with my grandfather, before we knew the severity of his situation, they were taking him to do uh, a scan on his leg to figure out how bad the clot was. And a young man walked into the emergency room where we were, and he just had this 
this very soothing voice and a very soothing spirit. And he was just so polite with my grandfather. Mr. Seeley, we're going to do this. We're going to take you here. This is what we're going to do. This is how long it's going to take. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this. I'm going to do that. And then there was a delay because my grandfather only had one IV and they needed another IV. And he said, well, we're just going to wait a minute and this is what's going to happen. He came back and he you know, was preparing to take my grandfather after they had gotten the other IV in. My grandfather looks over to me and we were all, my family was just you know, prepared to wait in the room that we were in. And my papa looks at me and he says, John, are you coming with me? I stand right up. Of course, of course I'll come. All the while, this, this young man is just attending to my grandfather. He's, he's a transporter in the hospital, and I don't mean to demean that role. It's, he, he's not a doctor. He's not, he's not a medical professional. He's just there to transport and care for the patients as he moves them between the rooms. But man, this man was doing his job so well. And as we were walking there, we were, he and I were just talking, and then my grandfather got the exam, and we got the news that we did and I remember just this young man still being soothing and and compassionate and I just looked over to him as we were walking back to the room and I said you know you have a very soothing voice and a very soothing spirit are you a believer and he looked up at me with a smile and he says oh yeah I'm a believer And I said, I knew it. I knew it. You've had those interactions before. My question is, has someone had that interaction with you? Have they looked at you and said, are you a believer? Because like, I can just tell. I've told you that our series for 2020 or our theme for 2020 is about revival that on January 12th, we kick off with a series called revive all and that God, I believe wants to use us to do a mighty work in our community. But listen, he can't use us until we are transformed. Not because his power is limited, but because until we are changed, we are useless. And the last thing that I want to be labeled as is useless. You often hear in the Gospels about the wheat being separated from the chaff. You see the chaff is useless. And you know what happens to the chaff? It gets thrown in the fire. This must be a wake-up call for all of us. You see, at the heart of the message of Christ at the heart of the message of John the Baptist is repentance. And so today we have a choice. We have had an encounter with the Savior. We have heard his word. He is in our presence and we must not go home the same. You see, what must happen is we must choose to repent. We must choose to walk in the transformation that God wants to make in our life. The first things that John the Baptist said is he came out of the wilderness and began preaching. He said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, after he was baptized and went into the wilderness and came out of the wilderness, the first thing that he preached, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. 
that message is no less true and no less relevant and no less urgent today. We must repent. In Joel chapter 2, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. This is the gospel demonstrated in the Old Testament. Often in the Old Testament, we think about the law. We think about, well, I have to follow the law. I have to do this. I have to do that. Joel, well, God speaking through Joel, is basically saying, I'm not interested in the ritual. Because when they would repent in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would tear their clothes They would put burlap on. They would sit in the middle of town. They would put dust and ashes in their hair. And they would mourn and wail so everyone could see. God says, rend your hearts, not your clothes. What he's saying is you get to the heart of the matter. You tear the flesh away so that I can take that heart of stone and I can replace it with my heart and my spirit in you. He says, rend your hearts Tear it apart. Let me come in and bring change and transformation to you. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. That is the God that we serve. It's abounding in love. He has sent his son to live a perfect life on this earth. To die on the cross is our sin so that Jesus would go back into God's presence, offering himself as that sacrifice for us so that our sins could be washed away. We must respond. We must Change. We must repent. We must let him make us new. You see, it's our responsibility to go and tell it on the mountain, to be God's mouthpiece in this world. My dad sent me an email this week and just this most profound statement. He says, we must remember that we are not God's defenders. We are his mouthpiece. I love having a godly father. I just, I was blown, that blew me away, Dad. What a reminder. He says, so often we spend our time and we say, well, I'm a Christian, so I have to defend. No, my position as a Christian is not to defend my Savior. Do you think God can't defend himself? Right? And yet we, we often act like we believe that. We're not called to be his defenders. We are called to be his mouthpiece, to be his representation on this earth. But that can only happen when there has been transformation. So have you had an encounter with the Savior? Maybe you're here this morning and you said, well, I haven't been changed because I, don't, I haven't even given my life to Christ. I haven't had that encounter. Listen, there is no better time than right now. There is no better time than this moment. 
If you've had that encounter with Christ, have you truly been transformed as the fruit of your life aligned with the spirit of God that he deposited in you? And then lastly, what do you need to repent of? Notice that question does not say, do you need to repent? The answer to that question is yes. The question is, what do you need to repent of? And if in your mind, and your spirit, you're kind of going back and forth with God, well, do I need to repent of that? Yeah, you do. Repent. Repent. Because the God that we love, the God that we serve, you know what it says? That he is slow to anger, abounding in love. That he will bring you back to himself. That he will begin again that work of transformation that he started. Or if it's the first time, he will start that work. Just trust him to do that because he promises that he will. So as we pray, I want you just to, to go back to that moment of reflection. Think about these last seven days. What do you need to repent of? What is God calling you to change? What part of, or what part of you has turned to stone that God needs to remove? Where does he need to deposit his spirit in you? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we are humbled by your love. That you would love us so much to send your word to us, God. That you would speak this truth, that you would show us your desire for transformation, God. That you would even choose to change us. God, make us willing. Put your spirit in us and move us to follow you. Forgive us, God, of those things that we have done. Take a moment and just privately confess them to God. Confess the attitude. Confess the selfishness. Confess the doubt. Confess the greed. Confess the lust. Confess Confess worldliness. Confess resisting him. Confess everything. Don't hold anything back. Lay it at his feet. God, we cry out for your forgiveness. We lay these things at your feet, God. Forgive us for those sins in us that, that separate us from you. Take them away, God. Cleanse us. Make us new. Put your heart in us. Put your spirit in us, Lord. God, forgive us for the fruit of our life, not reflecting the change that you want to make. God, and let that change begin anew and afresh in this moment. Let us, having encountered you today, God, let us not go home the same way. Let us be changed by you. Let us walk in that change from here on out, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. We thank you, God, for the work that you are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.